Pummer Quest, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Pummer Quest is a weekly podcast about everything in and relating to technology with three techno experts Joel Cox, Hi. Ryan Swiner, Yo. and me, Eric Newman. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Polar Quest. My name is Eric Newman, and across from me in the southwest of the Northeast is my favorite person in the whole world, Joe Cox. For tonight, at least. Hi, Joe. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm fine. I just told you I'm spending tonight with the favorite person in the world. Aww. Aww. That's right. And across the equator from Joel is our other favorite person, Ryan Swiner. Hi, Ryan. Hey, buddy. We're not going to make you sit for five minutes while Joel and I kibitz before we introduce you. So, okay. You know, I appreciate, you know, I, why don't I, I'm sorry. I almost said, I appreciate that, which is what I was, you should have said. Anyway, okay. Why don't, <laughs> great show already. All right. Today, tonight, we're going to talk about the Ethereum merger because that just happened. Mm-hmm. You might also be listening to the show out of order, just to let you know, because uh, there are. F- this is episode number four that we've done of our resurrected pull request. But if you're listening to this as episode number one, then you'll ex- you'll hear our explanation about why we're doing this three episodes later or before, because that makes sense. What's linear anyway? Not podcasting. Not podcasting, that's right. And um, also not linear is tech hell. Now, Joel, you've been in some tech hell lately. You want to talk about it? Sure. So as we talked about earlier, my Plex server has been dying randomly. That's right. You mentioned that last episode, if we're doing this in order, but just mentioned that we're not doing it out of... Yes, okay. Your Plex server is dying. Yes. So I went online and found a NAS kit on eBay. Just add hard drive in that power supply. Is it NAS No, just NAS. NAS. So I get the bo- I get the drive. I mean, I get the motherboard. I get everything. Plug it this in. Is it like one of those Western Digital things for four hundred bucks. No, 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 no. This is a a SUS motherboard, a i seven processor, some RAM, and a SAS card, which I can't really identify. Oh, I'm hoping you like SAS is in like server SATA. Yep. Nice. So I'm hoping that Ubuntu can can deal with it. I think Pl- it can. Yeah. Plugged it in. Nothing. Nothing as in no problems or nothing happened? Fan spins, that's it. No Fan video, spins, no it. audio. Oh, the, video or audio? Is it is it actually a machine? Or it's is a, it just like an appliance? It's, mother, it, the it's a motherboard. It's a motherboard. It's a motherboard and a processor and some RAM. So it's a ba- Oh, so it is like a bare bones computer. Yeah. Okay. And... You hooked everything up, and I'm going to assume, since you're a geek and you're on this podcast, you know how to put together a computer. I've, I've put a few together in the past put a few 25 years. Put a few together in your time, yeah, sure. Um, so, is nothing... Well, is there, is there t- integra- there's integrated video, I assume. Yes. And that just didn't turn on? Nope. I, I put a beeper on it. I took the RAM out, because, you know, anytime you don't have RAM, you get sure. a postcode. No postcode. No postcode. Beautiful. No sounds, nothing? Nope. So the guy on eBay is actually really nice and sent me a new motherboard to replace it. Oh, same model and everything? Yep. Look at that. That's cool. Yeah. And so when is that coming in? I have no clue because it took four four to five days last time. And UPS got lazy over the weekend because it was a holiday weekend when I ordered it. And they took an extra couple of days. Sure. And also our audience won't know when you'll get it because our shows are out of order right now. So. Yep. You'll get it sometime, which is cool. Uh, how much RAM are you putting in? I think it comes with 16. Okay. Is it, it special server RAM, or is it no, your standard? It's standard RAM. 
It's just, it's going to be a, a ghetto NAS server, basically, and I'll have my other server uh, okay. do all the heavy lifting. Cool. Um, I, I bought a set of headphones. Uh, nice, which Anchor. we always, always need, especially on a podcast. Yep. They're Bluetooth wireless for my bike ride I'm doing on Sunday, and ah. they won't connect to my phone. Well, you know what? I have the same problem, uh, but I have some cheapo headphones and an expensive phone, and my phone is too good for the headphones. Oh, it's the other way around. I bought a $100 pair of headphones, and my phone will not play nice, so I'm going to probably wipe it tomorrow and try again. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah, that, that's... Did you do anything to upset the tech gods? I I don't know what I did, but I'm very sorry that I did. You, gotta, you, you better pray to Linus, because I don't know. Between Android and Ubuntu, he's the only one who can save you. Pretty much. Pretty much. Ryan, have you been in any tech hell lately, outside of having to talk to us? Ooh, um, yeah. Yeah, I've been uh, dealing with a, a client project that won't die, because I... I uh, I made a too junior of a developer in charge of it, and oh, yeah, yeah. So and I've there's been... just tons of problems. So now, so let me ask you because I've run into a project like this where you delegate it to a junior dev so you can save time to work on your stuff or other things on the project that really require your attention. Right. And the junior dev sucks to the point where you end up spending more time than if you would have just done it yourself. Correct. And more pain because things make less sense than they would. You have to undo his mistakes and make less sense. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, man. Oh, That's, well, uh, it happens. Say la vie. I uh, also am in tech hell. My laptop is dying. Maybe because it's nine years old. It is officially in the laptop ICU. Even though I'm using it right now to do the show notes uh, and to pull up some of the links that we have, I can't type on the keyboard. Just a lot of the keys don't work, like the T or the O, R, S, T, L, and E. Those keys, (coughs) excuse me, those keys don't work properly. Laptop's nine years old. It's from 2013. It can't run the latest version of Mac OS. And um, actually, you know what? You know what we should do? Do I have this? Do Do I have this? Oh, no, I don't. Must uh had the Apple Attack theme music, but I forgot to add it to my little soundboard here. So, oh well. Uh, but yeah. So uh, so my laptop it still kind of works, and this is a weird position that I'm in because growing up as a as as uh, someone that didn't have any money, I never had a new computer. But now that I finally got a new computer, this was actually my first new Apple laptop in 2013. Hmm. I, it's weird to have a laptop that still technically works, and then I'm buying another one. So I bought a new computer, which is not a re- actually new computer, but it's new to me because I haven't seen it. And it's a MacBook Pro from 2019. It's a 16-inch with the fixed keyboard and the hard escape key. Um, and I got it because Apple is because the chip shortage and all the other supply chain issues, Apple's dragging their feet and getting the, the new MacBooks out the new M2 Pro laptops. And my rule when it comes to Apple stuff is never get the first revision of a body style. So think about the first the first power books that came out. I think they were the uh, titanium ones. They had massive overheating issues. They basically just killed themselves. First MacBook Pros that came out did the same thing. The 1.1s, the Intel Core Solos, massive overheating issues, basically ate itself. And plus, the second gen, which came out 6 to 12 months later, was leaps and bounds better so i'm hoping the same thing is happening with with the uh, with the m chips so they have the m1 pro if you get a macbook pro today that's 16 inches you're going to get an m1 pro 
which performs pretty well, but it's still the first one. It's still basically the first big processor in Apple's in Apple's you know computer PC level processor thing processor scheme. So I'm gonna get the last Intel laptop, much like how I got the last Intel iMac. Uh, it has 16 gigs of RAM and a terabyte hard drive, which is basically a modern version of my laptop from 2013. So, yeah, so it's just the sorry. You you want the Intel chip right now? Yes, but remember what I said. I what I want is the M2 Pro MacBook Pros. Mm. That yeah. computer is going to come out probably spring summer of next year, mm-hmm. and it's going to cost the one that I want is going to cost five thousand dollars. Okay. And that's not unreasonable. And if you price out an M1 Pro, you give it 32 gigs of RAM, a terabyte hard drive, you know, bells and whistles and stuff. <clears throat> that's how much it comes out to is about four or five grand. Mm. Yeah, Apple Care and tax and stuff. So, uh, so this was 1200 bucks. 1200 bucks to get me through the next year or so. Because maybe the M2 Pros have problems. I, don't, I won't be like a man finding an oasis in the desert with this next laptop. It actually gives me some more time than just the next revision. But yes, of course, I'm. I'm really. I really want to get the the M2 Pros. Um, do you do? Do you have an M1 right now? I do. Yeah. So do I you? Have... Does it? How does it do with with uh, compiled libraries? Ooh, that's a. That's uh, that. That's why I want to stick to Intel. That's a good question. I actually. I actually don't know, but I would imagine not great. Right. That's exactly why. That's exactly why I got the last <clears throat> Intel iMac. Which, by the way, the the M1 iMacs look like. Fisher Price toys compared to the compared to this, um, but the same thing with the laptop. And remember, the laptop is a stopgap. It allows me to like take it places and use it as a laptop rather than this, which is basically a lead balloon. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I can do is I can sync the images between my desktop and my laptop. So I could just back up my desktop to a, an external drive, and then I could boot the laptop from that drive and then sync it back to my desktop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Cool stuff. All right. So that's that. But before, uh, before we dive in any further, one of my friends had an interview recently, and they were asked an interesting coding question, and I would love to know what you guys think. You want to do a quick, quick coding exercise? Ooh, yeah, let's talk about it. All right. Uh, you know, I miss the one thing I didn't do uh, f- when resurrecting this show is really putting in all the old jingles back. So, uh <laughs> Here's the question. Can, if you have a string, that's a word, and you have an array, that's an array of characters, you have to find out, it, does the array contain enough letters to spell out the word? If the word has duplicate letters, and we're only dealing with lowercase, if the word has duplicate letters, then the array has to have that number of entries of that letter. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, it can't, so it can't just be like, okay, it has an N, and however many times we have N, it works. It's, it has to have two ends if the word has two ends, like Newman. So mm-hmm. how do you do it? Uh, hash map. It's a hash map problem. It's going to help a lot. Um, so the first thing I'm, gonna, I'm going to want to do is I'm going to make some little dictionary that counts each one of the characters, right? So mm-hmm. I'm going to iterate through the, the target word, I'm going to create a little dictionary. So let's say if it was the word rabbit, I need to have one R. One A, two Bs, an I, and a right. T, right? So mm-hmm. like I've got that two, and then so that's my that's my target. 
So after I iterate through this target, and once I start going through this target string, I am um, <clears throat> I'm trying to stop at the first point where I have surpassed counts of each one of those um, each one of those oh, characters. Oh, that's interesting. In the so you dictionary. loop through. So then, <clears throat> so then you loop through the array of characters, and every time you have a letter in the character or a, a letter in the array, you find out if that's in the hash map, and then decrement the index of the hash map. Yeah, I mean, right? you could, you could or probably... would you make a hash map of the same dictionary, the same dictionary uh, uh, with the array? You know what else you could do you, to, to no, know well, which one of those would you would you choose? Well, step back one more. I'm still thinking through my own implementation. Of, All right, I'm sorry, thing. I interrupted you. Go, go ahead, just keep going with your. Okay, so so like I'm gonna add one more thing to it. Let's say that I also added a. Let's say I added a total to um, to that. So I had the the, to the I, I had the, the length of the the first word, right? So if it's you know the word rabbit, I've got. Uh, the integer six. Oh, so you could you could just easily compare if it has the number of letters before you actually loop through it. Yeah. So so okay. um, what I want to do is as I as I iterate through the um, the string that I'm I'm searching through, where I'm checking to see if it has you know one of each of these letters. Uh, what I'm going to want to do is um, every time I find a letter. That's in the in my in my target mapping. I'll deduct one from that entry. So if it's an R, I'll right. deduct one from that. That's so, what I that's what I said earlier. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. Sorry. And then um, I would deduct one from the total, and then um, I'd go around again. So now I'm looking right. for other things that match, and then I'm trying to get down to zero. And as soon as I get to zero, and uh, the only time I'm decrementing is when I find a valid match in the dictionary for, you know. Right. Uh, so if yeah. I got you. Keep going. So if you exceed the end of the array while there's still a total, then it's invalid. Or if the total goes to zero before uh, end, you end the array, then that's true. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I basically, I always have a return false at the end of the, right. at the, end of the thing. So if I either run out of characters to iterate through, um, or if, okay. yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to, I'm basically, that's the only condition, right? I get to the end of the array and I still have a, a total greater than, greater than zero. So what's the what's the complexity of that? You have m for the length of the string, so you loop through that. That's m. You have the length of the array, which you're looping through once. I think it's it's linear, right? Yeah. So you're you're gonna go through so m plus n, or is it m plus two n? Um. Well, I th n is the length of the array. I think it is basically just the length of the array. I think. Well, no, because you also have to make the dictionary for the word. So that's... Ostensibly so much shorter, but... No, no, but that's still M plus N, then. Which M isn't bad. M plus N. Uh, M okay. is the length of the word. N is the length of the array. Got it. The thing that you're, thing that you're checking and the thing that you're iterating right. through. Yes, you have an M plus N relation. Do they ask that part? Because I, I, I always just think of it as, like, I forget all the... The proportion. I don't know. I wasn't in the interview, but the point is, is you know, it's like if it's an interview, then it's probably good to know. Yeah. Uh, as a senior developer, but uh, Joel, what do you think? My friend who had this interview, I, I'll tell you my answer, which is different from I think the best answer that my friend, the guy who actually was in this interview, uh, had. But Joel, what what do you think? I think I would not get this job because I have no clue how to do this. Okay. So uh, here's what I did, and then I'll tell you what I think is the the golden answer. 
Um, I did something very similar to what you did, Ryan, but it's a little bit it's a little bit heftier. So I made a dictionary of the word, just like what you did, uh-huh. and then I also made a dictionary of the array, uh-huh. and then I just looped through the dictionary of the array, and I said if the length of the if the the letter if the let I'm sorry, I looped through the uh, the 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 word, and then I say if this word is either not in the array or the length at this index is less than the ind- than the the length the value at that index is less than the value at the index in the word dictionary then it's false and if it makes it to the end of the word then it's true mm-hmm. um but that is i believe 2m plus n mm-hmm. so it's actually a little worse than yours well, but the other limitation you'd see in some languages is that and we're doing this immutably by the way immutably Immutably, yes. Mm. Okay. The um, the other thing I think would be, so you might be in a language where you have to create another data structure because, like, not all languages can you iterate through the keys of your dictionary. Um, right. Well, I mean, in a hash map, if you think about it, you pretty much can. Mm-hmm. In in most languages. Mm-hmm. The so the golden answer, and I can't think of one that's better than this, and I also didn't think of this answer, so who knows? Um, is <clears throat> you loop through the array. You don't make a dictionary. You loop through the array, and every and for each element in the array, you string replace that character in the word to a null character. And then you check if, and then at the at the end of each of each iteration, you check if the word has any length. If the word doesn't have any length before the loop ends, then it's true. If you finish the loop and the word still has length, then it's false. And that is order n. Okay, let's think about that one. That's a good answer. About that one more time. Um, All right, so you have, so you have the, the word, mm-hmm. you have the array. Mm-hmm. And you don't make the dictionaries. You just loop through the array. Uh-huh. And then each element in the array, you do a string replace in the word for that element, with, and then you replace it with nothing. Hmm. So okay. then the word gets shorter. Okay. And then you check the length of the word, and if the word reaches zero before your end, your before or like at the end of the array or before, then it's valid. If, there, if the word has length by the time that you're out of the loop, then it's invalid. Is that string replaced though? Is that also a linear operation? How efficient that is that operation? Is, it is, it's not a linear operation. Um, it's not, it's, but it's not constant time either. Mm. Uh, I did, I, what I did was, I'm not actually, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure, but I put my solution with the two dictionaries per versus my friend's solution on JS perf and his was 12% faster than mine. Hmm. Okay. Huh. So there is, cause I was, I, I, that's, that was my question is, is how expensive is the string replace? But, um, it's not as expensive as two dictionaries. So, hmm. yeah. And that's, uh. The more you know. <clears throat> How about? All right. Now, to the meat of the show. Mm-hmm. The Ethereum merge happened. Do you want to, do you want the, uh... and now, cryptocurrency with Ryan Swa- We don't have to do that. This mm. one's fine. Um, the Ethereum merge happened. Yeah. And uh, uh, hopefully the listeners know a little at least a little bit about ethereum that it's a cryptocurrency that it exists i didn't know that it was going through a major merger so now it's on mainnet 
correct? Instead of not quite. So it not, was not quite. Okay, and this is why we're even, talking about it. So it's crazier yeah. than that. So they took the mainnet um, blockchain, and the mainnet is the the blockchain that most major cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Yeah, it's are on. it's a three hundred billion dollar network. So there's you know in total that's less than our defense budget. Yeah, still less than a defense budget. So in total, uh, you know. People entrust this network to $300 billion worth of value, and they have been working on a software update for six years, wherein they replaced the security mechanism on which it functions. So, and that's a big deal because the proof of work algorithm that is used to secure the Bitcoin blockchain was was the first of its kind, it is generally thought to be, or was generally thought to be the only trustworthy consensus mechanism that solves right. the double spend problem. Um, and what in the day, just, you know, really quickly, the double spend problem is... Okay, so it's, it's basically, it's very difficult to conceive of a, of a distributed database that can operate without trusting someone that is able to avoid in an edge case where someone can use the same coin twice twice before it propagates yeah. through the network yeah so so for years and years since the you know early that's 90s like? that's like how I, i'm sorry that's like how i spent money in college yeah playing the overdraft game yeah can i use this debit card before it before the overdraft kicks in and denies me that because that happens at 2 a.m that's a I used to game. do that. It's, 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 not, it's a game you don't play to win. Um, <laughs> anyway, or even if you win, you lose. If Much you win, like you cryptocurrency. Lose. Yep. So. Yep. What was I saying? I was saying something Proof of about, work. Okay. Yeah. So it's the... Uh, security. So one of the things that I found out while doing the research for this uh -huh. proof of work is actually not as secure as the alternative, which is what Ethereum used proof of stake. Correct? So in order to do a transaction you had to basically put some collateral in so then you're not just using this network without any stake of your own which is why it's um so there so if we if we back up to the conceptual level of what these networks are trying to do right sure they're trying to do accounting and they're trying not to have a central um source of truth they're trying to make it so that Everyone participating in the network has a copy of the transactions. And then in order to make progress, in order to add more transactions to the ledger, they have to play this game, this security game that has to basically be uncheatable. And very, very hard to design one of these games. Sure. And the, the Bitcoin game is analogous to the proof of work game is analogous to uh, pulling a slot machine lever quite literally. So, I mean, not, not quite literally, but it's metaphorically. pretty close. So, so is there a literal lever that you pull Ryan? There's a, there is a function that runs that takes okay, the last block of transactions. Oh, there isn't an actual lever. Like if there was a lever. Literally. They should put one it's on. It's a metaphor. Okay. It's okay. It is metaphorically pulling a lever. So um, 
there's a a function that runs, you know, a, a billion times a second or however many times a second they can they can run it. Um, that goes and takes a a block of transaction data and then it takes some random garbage, some random letters and numbers, and it mm-hmm. it creates a hash, creates a signature for the block. And they're trying to find a hash that has a certain number of zeros in it generally. And there is no predicting what inputs are going to create a hash that looks a certain way. Why does it need to look that way? That is a difficult criteria. It's literally, it's just for the sake of, of uh, having something that's rare to create. So per, per like laws of large numbers, if I run a hash a billion times, then there's a certain probability that one of these hashes is going to look a certain way. That's the, that's the game, right? So like, okay. And so in order to make sure that no one can cheat the game, they have this system of randomness and they rely on the laws of large numbers to know that in 10 minutes, uh, all the computers around the world, it's going to take about 10 minutes on average for someone to find a hash that looks like this. And so, okay. so that's the proof of work. It's a, it's a law of large numbers thing. So, and these are being done on servers, just like the, the network servers for the mainnet? These are, these are happening on... Um, so on the Bitcoin network, there's like 200,000 some odd computers all over the world that are running this program, and they're all competing to find this next block so that they can literally get the block reward so they can get paid in right. Bitcoin for finding the block. That's the right. game. What's that called? That's the it's, that's uh, the proof of work algorithm. Oh, no, I thought there was something where like you can it, like some people were I don't know if you could still do this. Some people were instead of mining they were they were actually doing the transaction hashes. I think they were just validating the proof of work. Is that something that people so, Is that what I'm thinking about or So there are nodes that keep a um that keep a history of the ledger that keep a copy of the transactions so that's a different process so that's that's maintaining the integrity of the ledger that's saying i don't trust you to have a copy of the transactions without me having a copy of the transactions because i want to check your facts so that's more of a query a lookup game but the the mining game the execution layer where people are competing to add to the to the blockchain, add to the ledger, that's a different process. That's a that's a game. That's a a, a game that people play that they race because they're trying to win this monetary reward. Sure. And does the does the reward change with time? Yep. Or is it just a static price? Yes, it's actually what drives the. Um, that's what drives the speculation in the lower numbers are better, I guess. E, well, lower numbers cost more electricity to find. Right. So, right. If the reward for finding a, a Bitcoin block is six Bitcoin one year and three the next, then it takes twice as much electricity to find that hash. But that, but that also, it's not. I mean, that, speaking of linear again, it's that's also predicated on having the same technology. 
and not having newer technology that might be more efficient at it. Oh, that gets um, fun. So, um, right. So the network, so that the Bitcoin software adjusts the difficulty of, of the hash that it has to find based on the known computing power of the world network. Ooh. Yeah. So they basically know nice. at all times what the hash power across the entire network is. And then from that, they calculate how hard to find the hash needs to be. Interesting. So that they maintain that roughly 10-minute block time. Okay. So that's, that's proof of work. That's proof now, of work. Now, proof of stake is collateralized, right? I got that right. part right? Proof of but what else is different? Okay, so proof of stake, instead of uh, us proving to each other that, uh, you know, you couldn't have made up this hash because you couldn't have guessed it any other way than just jamming away. Having it. Right? Right. Uh, the proof of stake game basically says, I bet you my money that I'm not lying. I bet you my own money that I didn't, um, I didn't forge this hash. That's the and the money is any stable coin. Does it have to be the same currency as what you're buying? Does it have to be uh, another oh, like an a, intermediate? Well, that's a good question. So, so the proof of stake thing, it's it's just like the mining system. It well, not just like it, but sort of like the mining system in that you are running a computer. You're taking Ethereum. It's only it's only the network token. So you're taking Ethereum. You're putting it into a smart contract. And then, and then you begin validating transactions um, in order to earn interest. So that's the reward. And does it have to go into a smart contract? Is that just part of the process or a smart contract separate from the, from the mining and validation? Yeah, so like that's, that's how they maintain control over your money while you're validating. So you put this money in a, in a basically an escrow account. And right. so you don't have full control over that money anymore. You, and that's why it's your stake. That's why it's your stake. And so you can't just withdraw it. So if you decide to start producing fraudulent transactions, the network has a series of uh, punishment mechanisms where it starts reducing your money. It starts taking your money. And they've worked out the math such that any fraud would be dramatically more expensive than any benefit you could derive from the fraud. Okay. So that's, that makes sense. That's the game. So the, so the benefit is that you don't have to use an inordinate amount of electricity. So you've probably also heard basic ESG arguments against... Um, ESG is Ethereum something? No, about? no, no. Just environmental safety guidelines. The, oh. You know, the political acronym. Gotcha. No, I haven't. Uh, so, so the Bitcoin network spends um, an, a crazy amount of electricity. A lot of electricity sure. required to secure the network. Proponents uh, say that it's worth it. That it's just, this is just because this is a known solution to the double spend problem and it secures a very valuable, very important financial network. This is just a worthwhile cost. Um, other people that are less forgiving in their environmental sensibilities will say that this is just a a travesty that you're you're spending um, you know you're, you're taking the electricity that a small country would use and you're using it to to send fake right. money around right 
Right. But I mean, I mean, that's a, you know, that's, that's anathema because you could use clean energy. You could use, you know, some, some kind of renewable energy. Correct. What about, um, hoarding? So let's say if a group of miners gain more than half, more than 50% of control of a given cryptocurrency, that's proof of work. Are they, are they allowed, can they actually mess with the, mess with the levers in proof of work? So... In the proof-of-work system, that is called a 51% attack. And I actually personally need to learn a little bit more about them. Um, as I understand it, they, even with a 51% attack, you can't do as much as you would think. Um, but yes, it is, if, you, if you control an inordinate amount of the network, you can... Um, you can you can dominate the network. You have a lot. You can prevent transactions from being you can validated. You can prevent transactions. You can you can keep saying that anything that came from the minority stake is uh, you know an invalid block, and only the blocks that come out of my network are valid. And can you double spend? Because you're, you're in a sense majority validating your own things. Um, I actually don't. I don't fully know the answer to that. Well, let's take a look at uh, Investopedia. I'm not going to pretend like I know the answer because I just asked you, but the internet does. So a 51% attack is uh, what you need to have in order to qualify as dark chocolate instead of milk chocolate. Mm, got it. If it's under 50, 50% and under, it's milk. But if it's over 51%, then it's dark. That really clears things up. Yeah. No, a 51% attack is uh, where a group of miners that control more than 50% of, uh, of the network's mining hash rate. Owning 51% of the nodes on the network gives control. So it's not even the, the currency, it's just the nodes of the network, mm -hmm. which is interesting then because of something like China, where if China has a cryptocurrency where everything is inside of their country, the whole network is inside of their country, or at least 51% of it is, and they could do whatever they want. Mm. So uh, the attackers... <clears throat> Owning 51% of the nodes in the network gives controlling parties the power to alter the blockchain. The attackers would be able to prevent new transactions from gaining confirmations, like we said, mm -hmm. allowing them to halt payments between some or all users. Oh, oh sorry. Allowing them to, to halt payments between some or all users. They'd also be able to reverse transactions that were completed while they were in control of the network. Mm -hmm. Reversing transactions would allow them to double spend. That's how they double spend. Mm -hmm. So there's a net. So because they control the validation, someone spends goes onto their network for, for validation and then they reverse it but then they and then they spend it again uh because they have consensus control well so there's some interesting details in there they still so they can reverse things but they still cannot create signatures to move money from uh, someone's wallet where they don't know the private key which is interesting they can't create signatures well yeah because it's a private key right Right. So isn't that interesting, though? So they, they, don't, they can't say... They can't create new stuff. That's why I guess they have to, in order to double spend, they have to legitimately spend once and then revert it because yeah. then, they, then, they, then the keys match. But they, they couldn't do very interesting... Like, they couldn't take the coins out of your wallet, any arbitrary wallet, and move it into their wallet, which Coinbase I... Coinbase can. I think, yeah, Coinbase can do it. Because it's not your wallet when it's on their website. Right, it's their database. That's another story. Yep. Joel, you've been pretty quiet. 
Uh, you okay, man? Yeah, I'm just absorbing all this because I've been looking for someone to talk to about crypto too, and you're answering all the questions I was going to ask. Well, then let's talk about it. Come on, you're not here to just listen to the show. You can do that once we're done. So, so what about I. so what about the Coinbase uh, phone wallet? Is that different from the web wallet? The phone the, wallet versus the web wallet? Yeah, yes. yeah, it is. It is. It is different. So okay, uh, it actually does create a private key. They do give you the seed phrase for it. It is a non-custodial wallet. So you actually do control the phones that are in that wallet. Really? Yep. So why what, don't they let you do that on the web? Because that's what I do. Is I use the Coinbase phone app. It's a step yeah, better. Yeah, it's through the Coinbase phone app. Like, why wouldn't they let you do it on the web? So the benefit of the centralized exchange is the lower fees and the speed of transaction. But that's still, you know, that's still happening on your phone. Nope. It's still the same exchange. Nope. Once they, it's not the same exchange. Nope, it's on your phone. So you, the pat, the private key that secures uh, that money now lives with you and your phone. So it's not actually in the custody of Coinbase anymore. But why can't they do that on the web? And is that only because, uh, is that is that only because it it hurts their bottom line? So once they actually send those coins to that wallet on your phone. It's now, it's actually lives with you. So you, you're not in their exchange. Yeah. And so when they have to trade things around on their exchange, they're just flipping around numbers in a Postgres database. Well, I mean, realistically speaking, that's what the modern economy is, is just flipping around numbers in a giant database. Right. Right. And that's actually, um, you know, and people who are purists in the crypto economy space will speak to how crazy that is, that we trust a relatively small number of people with these very important databases that but that's how banking works right and except someone if someone wants to move stuff around on, on like goldman sachs's spreadsheet they can do it uh because it's it's a lot less secure they than something it. like this they they could do it and if but they if they got caught uh, or if and they weren't colluding with a bunch of other smart people they could just go to jail for a very long time but yeah we're not we're unlikely. not jailing they might bankers. get they might get a stern talking to, you know. Stern talking to, and a little bit of fine. Right. Maybe like a, a million dollars. Right. Yeah, you might get a fine just to, just to, just to give you a bad summer. They'll make that money like back that. over lunch. Right. But okay. All right. So let's let's keep moving. So, uh, so we so proof of work versus proof of stake. Joel, do you do you get it? Yes, I do. All right. Why don't you explain it back to us? What is tr- proof of work? Well, proof of work is basically running the algorithm to get the, the number for the number of zeros, as he said, for the um, proof of work. Uh, proof of stake was basically. Well, you know what? Wait a second. I'm sorry, Joel. I still, Ryan, I still don't understand what the number, like why it has to have a large amount of zeros. Because it's... you're okay. looking for, you're looking, basically, it's like needle haystack. So in order to have the, the haystack, they pick an arbitrary number with a number of zeros in it. Because that's just part of the process that they for the, that they choose to make the hash that's is just chose. a lo- large yeah. number with a lot of zeros, let's, not just a random large number. Let's yeah. put it like this. So if um, let's let's break it down to its elements, right? Before we get into the um, uh, the the math of combining independent events and statistics, right? So if I generate sure. a hash and I have a range of um, what's it going to be uh, thirty six or um, or 
52, 62. It's either going to be, depending on if, it's just, it's all. 72? Okay, it's, it's, That's it's 36 case, times 2. It's case insensitive. Uh, so it's just you the number. You mean 26? Yeah, 26 Where, plus, come from? plus the numbers, right? So or plus well, all right, it's so hex. plus ten. Oh, that's thirty-six. Yeah, it's less than that. It's in hex, so it's uh, anyway. Yeah, anyway. it's fine. Well, it's uh, it's it's sixteen actually. So so you have a one in sixteen chance of um, the last um, number in your hex string being, being a, a or zero, right? Right. And then um, well, a is ten, not zero. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, zero is zero. In this zero case. is zero. Right, zero is zero. So you have a one in 16 chance or one in 15 chance, one in 16 chance, 16. I think anyway, let's keep going. So you have, a, you have a one in 16 chance of that last number being zero. Now, what are your chances of the last two numbers being zero? Well, now it's... It would be 16 times 16. Right. One over 132. Right. And then it, it, no, it's 256, isn't it? 16 times 16. Yeah, 256. So you, I know my, my power is a two. Mm-hmm. And then you just start getting crazier, right? So now what are the right. chances of the last three, last four, last five? Now all of a sudden right, you start right. getting it exponentially into, increases. Yeah, you start getting into astronomical numbers. So they just did it as a way to prevent, to, to prevent fakes or just to kind of limit the domain so they know that they have a better chance. Security through obscurity, I guess, a little bit? So they, so they, they literally did it because they... So that if you know the if you know the number of times that all the computers in the network can run that function, mm-hmm. you know how long it's going to take. You can you can calculate roughly at what point would you have ninety nine percent certainty that someone is going to find that hash inside of thirty seconds, inside of a minute, inside of two minutes, inside of five minutes. And gotcha. so that's what it is. There's a a mathematical certainty that. Uh, we know how many computers there are. We know how fast this network can run this function. And so we have to make it difficult enough so that one or two people on the network, only one or two people on the network are going to find it in the next 10 minutes. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That's the, All right. So, that's so Joel, uh, proof of stake. And will you take it medium rare or medium or, or rare? I'll take it medium. Or do you want to do the Donald Trump well done with ketchup? No. No, no ketchup. Okay. Proof of stake. Proof of stake is basically putting your money where your mouth is, saying that you're going to find the blog and have someone else prove it. Am I correct? Yep, pretty much. It's, uh... is the, now, is the algorithm, the, the outside of the, the collateralization, is the, how different is the actual validation algorithm? So that process, that's not really part of the security game, right? So that's that's more... The accounting, that's fee. So, so people are bidding on those transactions. And so as a block producer, as someone organizing the block, I just want to mm-hmm. make the most money. So I'm going to take the, all the transactions that won the auction, so to speak. So the people who paid enough to, um, to get their transaction included. Um, and I'm just going to take that. I'm going to take the winners and I'm going to make a block of transactions. I might put them in a certain order based on my preferences and I'm going to, I'm going to submit the block and I'm going to sign it with my, with my key. And then other people are going to check to see that I made a valid block. They're going to make sure that all the transactions. But that doesn't happen with proof of work. That kind of does happen with proof of work, but they're and they'll reorg the block, but they're more concerned with 
uh, playing that that game to find the hash with a bunch of zeros. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's all the same. It's all the same thing. You know, there is okay. a there is a a fee market to pay to get your transaction included. So people do um, people do pay to get their transactions included, and it's a competitive auction to um, to make sure that when it gets really competitive, it gets more expensive, and so it eventually dissuades people from making transactions when the network is congested. Okay. And now let's let's move into the other the other big thing that's attached to this, which is electricity consumption or energy consumption. So, mm-hmm. do you now now proof of work requires a lot of energy, mm-hmm. and if if we're switching Ethereum to a proof of stake based security or, or validation scheme, mm-hmm. it's obviously going to use a lot less. But will that actually be less electricity used? Or will it just increase the capacity for mining for these miners that will then mine other coins with their, with their increase? If they're used to spending $10,000 a month on power, now they only have to spend $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Then they'll use the, then they, they, rather than you know, having the extra money, they might just put it towards more mining. Mm. It's, it, it's kind of like <clears throat> you know, gas prices are ridiculous. Uh, I don't know what it's like in, in Colombia, but um, gas prices are ridiculous. And when they were really starting to spike a few months ago, Biden released some oil from our strategic reserve to lower prices. And that lowered prices for like a week. But if the people are just inflating the prices because they're inflating the prices, then then slightly increasing the supply will tamp down the will tamp will just slow the the um, the inevitable increase by a couple of extra weeks. And then they'll just increase it more to counter that. That's what I think about when I hear it's going to use less energy. It does use less energy, but I think that energy is still going to be used for other stuff that's related to this. Call me skeptical. I don't. So you can say for sure that the GPUs that were being used for Ethereum mining now just don't matter for that purpose. Why? Because you can use hardware stuff, ASICs and FPGAs? It's... The hardware required to do to to run a validator, so it's not called a miner; it's called a validator. The computer that actually did, they can run that on a Raspberry Pi. Not actually computing intensive. Really? Right. Oh, they're just to validate it, not to mine it. Right. That wool well, is the same process now. So there is not mining in a proof of stake network. But does that mean that you have to 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 mine Ethereum? There's no mining in a proof of stake. There's so you no can't mining mine in a proof of stake. There's there's basically an issuance rate. There's an interest rate for and that's why okay. Staking. So then the computers don't matter, and that's why the electricity is a lot less because you don't need all that power to run the GPUs. Correct. So now people have so that actually is going to tank the prices for GPUs, or it's going to make a really nice resale market. Or there will be. You know, people running AI workloads or something. They've right. I'm not sure. So I I found this graph uh, from DigitalEconomist.net. Here I'll I'll throw it in the in the show notes uh, for you. Um, that uh, I'll just, you know what I'll put it right at the top here uh, under coding question. There we Take go. a look at that graph. It has uh, it's really interesting because it does show it's Ethereum's energy consumption and it shows this massive dip when I guess they did the upgrade, but then. It by and that was oh no wait actually they so 
why, if they just did the merge, like mm-hmm. now, yeah. on June 24th, the, the energy consumption just tanked, and then it made it back up by August 15th, and now it's not as low as it shouldn't this be on the floor? Why is this relatively the same? So I don't think this is up to date. So actually, in 24 hours, haven't it says gone August by. to here. If you if you zoom in, oh, because this is from yesterday. Okay. Yeah, the last data point is up to yesterday. So in about a, in a day, whenever this the next data point kicks in, right, that is going to drop to near. It's going to comically drop to near zero. Uh, just like my Coinbase portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, will it make a boing when that happens? Or I don't know. I hope. Yeah. All right. So um, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So Carbon it's... footprint currently. Uh, all right. Actually. And let's talk about the realities of this carbon footprint thing. So. Yeah. Well, it's the same. It's honestly, I have the same skepticism with that as, as I do with this energy stuff, where the carbon footprint, they'll say, oh, there's so much less. But I don't think so. I think it's going to stay the same somehow. Um, I, well, I mean, the Ethereum network is certainly won't be contributing uh, as much to that power consumption. It doesn't make any sense. There's no, no, it's not that, yeah, but the network is in, is intangible. It's the miners. It's the, it's the people that are running these giant houses and warehouses filled with miners. Yeah. Well, I don't know what incentive they're going to have to run the miners anymore. Um, well, what about other currencies? There's millions of other altcoins. So you could, they could mine, uh, Ripple. You could go to, well, you couldn't actually, because that is a permission network. Uh, okay, then. In that Never mind. Case. So you actually have to have permission from the Ripple Foundation to help with their process. They don't trust just anyone. It's not a, it's, they haven't designed a security game that's as good as the, as the public uh, permissionless networks. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And so, and you can't just use any hardware for Bitcoin mining. So... You actually need ASICs. You need special purpose hardware to, to do uh, Bitcoin mining. So those GPUs don't really matter in a Bitcoin context. They can't really be repurposed that way. So then it'll be great for a resale. There'll uh, be a lot of happy video gamers buying former mm, Ethereum not what I heard. GPUs. I heard that the um, GPU mining actually damages the card somewhat. That makes sense because it's running at max. Yeah. For a- so like a lot of people were reselling them. But I guess there's a way to figure out how damaged it is, and people are figuring out, oh, if it came from a miner, don't buy it. Ah. Right. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Hmm. I don't doubt so, it. But one more some question. miners have already switched to Ergo, but they say that mining the currency still isn't profitable due to the electricity costs. That's what I said. So they actually mm-hmm. are switching, try switching to Ergo, nice, but still not profitable after electricity. Guess I'll shut down this rig in a moment. Wow. And some guy has... Uh, like 10 GPUs hmm. in, a, in a rig. All right. But, so what about proof of, uh, proof of capacity? Is that viable? Proof of capacity? So these consensus mechanisms, they spend, it's, it's one of these things, it's a don't roll your own kind of thing, like, uh, like an encryption algorithm or something. Like your chances of doing it well are just not very good. And so... I have personally spent time thinking about, you know, various consensus mechanisms, but the trouble is it's a very competitive, very tough game, and and so you just don't know, right? You don't know until someone battle tests your idea, and um, 
most ideas don't really stand the test of time. You know, it took it took 20, 30 years to to find a solution, the first solution to the double spend problem, and then uh, proof of stake is a bold. Um, it's a bold claim that they've done their research and that they have another game that is effectively an unbeatable security game. And some people have questions about that. Some people have questions about whether or not the proof of stake game has all the same or an equivalent or better set of security guarantees as the proof of work game. Now, what about Ethereum Classic? Because Ethereum forked earlier. Was it earlier this year or was it last year? It was that was back in 2017. No. Yep. Really? That's, oh my God. Yep. Man, I have lost track of time. Ethereum Classic. I am struggling to remember exactly what the impetus for Ethereum Classic was. There was this thing it, called the DAO hack. There was a, a smart contract um, that got hacked. And then I think there was a fork away from that hack. And if I'm not mistaken, I think... Ethereum Classic was uh, a fork of the network that didn't correct for that event. And uh. it continued on with less hash power. It has been 51% attacked several times. Um, you know what? You're, you're right. That's exactly what this article says. Is it? Is that the story? Yeah. In the, begin- in the beginning, there was only Ethereum. A group called the DAO mm-hmm. used Ethereum to create what was essentially a venture capital fund. Every day people could invest with ETH, collectively make decisions about where they were, blah, 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 blah. It raised more than $100 million through the sale of these tokens. Mm-hmm. But there, a vulnerability in the fund's code was soon exploited. Millions of dollars in ETH were drawn out of the fund, and investors panicked. Developers had a 28-day window to come up with a solution before the hackers could cash in the tokens, which represented a sizable portion of Ethereum's market cap at the time. Mm-hmm. So the most popular solution was to create a hard fork and reverse the hack uh, to give people their money back. Mm-hmm. While this drew support from other from big players in the Ethereum sphere, it caused an outcry from purists who believed in the blockchain principle that you don't tamper with the ledger. The blockchain should continue on with the theft intact. Even mm-hmm. though stealing it is tampering with the light, whatever. The people who believed in, in keeping things the same uh, stayed on the existing platform, and they, stay, and they became Ethereum Classic, and the people that didn't left, and they made new Ethereum, or regular Ethereum now. Mm-hmm. So, very good, Ryan. Yeah, that's basically the story, as I remembered it. It had something, something to do with the DAO. It had someone uh, lost a bunch of money based on... Um, uh, so that, that gets, touches on another thing. The network does exactly what it's supposed to do. But By the way, it was uh, December of 2020. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It was... Uh... Wow. No, 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 no. You're right. It was That's when the attack happened. I think that's why I heard of it then. Hmm. Yeah, it would have been... Uh... Yeah, I think that event was sometime in 2016 or 2017. 2016... 50 million, June of 2016, 50 million is stolen, 50 million dollars stolen from the venture fund. Mm-hmm. March 2017, Ethereum Classic community agrees to adopt the fixed monetary policy like Bitcoin, capping uh, the Etsy supply, Ethereum Classic, at 210 million coins. Yeah. Uh, then they get multiple 51% attacks right around uh, January of 2019 through November of 2020. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ethereum Classic has no plans to move to proof of stake. From proof of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, plans. No plans. So uh, this yeah. that touches on an interesting security thing. So 
The operating principles of the network, the Solidity programming language, the security game uh, on which the, these networks operate are very, very secure. They are touched by a lot of very smart people and they move very slowly in, in figuring out how to launch these protocols. The protocols are very safe. The smart contracts... They're safe until they're not. I mean, that's what happens with every security thing. It's yeah. like you say it's secure and then until somebody finds something. Way to make it not secure. But it hasn't been found <clears> in a long time. Um, then, So then, on the other hand, the smart contracts are only as good as the people that write them. So just sure. like any other piece of code, it's a much smaller number of people touching it, creating a certain functionality. And it is quite trivial to add some vulnerability, add some edge case into a smart contract that makes it exploitable. And so that's what happens when you have something like the DAO hack or you have an NFT contract that locks up a bunch of money or sends it to the wrong place. It's hmm. The contract is doing exactly what it was designed to do, just wasn't designed by a very smart person or a very scrupulous person. Right. Well, let me ask you this. Um, so even though there was the, the merge today, you were able to use Ethereum 2.0 earlier? Because here's an article from April that says... Users have already staked more than $11 billion worth of Ethereum as part of ETH 2.0's Phase 0 development. Yes. So that's a funny um, thing. How does that... So were we able to do this the whole time? No. So starting in December of last year, they launched what's called the Beacon Chain. The Beacon Chain was the proof-of-stake uh, network. And okay. they started running it, and people started staking on that is network. Is this just like a bunch of Kubernetes stuff, the actual network? Is it just like servers with, with, with Kubernetes, or is it actually... No, it's actually compiled. It's actually okay. compiled binaries that people run on little machines. Well, I mean, that's what... Yeah, but it's... Okay, anyway. Anyway. It's not... There's not a Kubernetes thing going on. It's not like a virtualized I got you. thing. Yeah. Um, so... They did start the beacon chain last year, and so they've been testing and preparing for this merge for a long time. They, they first did test runs with copies of the, of the blockchain. They, mm -hmm. uh, they merged all of the test nets. They, they did this merge a, a strange number of times. They did it a lot of times. In order to, I mean, it makes it makes sense because it looks like the merge today went with went out with went went off without a hitch, which, much like my pull requests, sometimes there's conflicts. Mm. Uh, it's incredible if you think about it because of the scale of this stuff. It, it, for right. for that type of thing to happen, it's it's actually a pretty big feat. Yeah, for nothing to go wrong, for there not to be any surprises. Do you think actually there like nothing went wrong, or it was just like no no fires, and so they said nothing went wrong got to be something right there's got to be something that was it's code it's got to be something yeah it's got to be something. unless well i don't know because you think about the incentive alignment you've got this pool of very smart devs a lot of them are very vested in this technology and so if they all screw up or if they screw up in any significant capacity they're literally screwing themselves over so unlike working for some big box tech company where you just want to get done with this feature and 
get home to your ultimate frisbee game or whatever. Um, these people really are, you know, staying up till staying up till two every day because it's their their fortune on the line. Okay, I think that's the incentive alignment, the culture around it. There's a lot of factors that that go into how zealous people are with the um, with the attention they put into this particular technology. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Are, is, there, is there any, uh, because it's a new network, is there any, any issues with it being more centralized than it should be because it only has a few people in it? Like one of them is Coinbase and Coinbase controls something like 40% of, the, of, the, of the ETH coin, ETH2 coins? Right. It's a good question. So there are some, I want, I want to say 200,000 validators. So every time you post... 422,000. Yeah, so every time you post 32 ETH, you create basically a new validator node. So there's a new there's a validator node for every 32 ETH that are staked. Really? Yeah. So that's incredible. There's a lot of nodes. It's a lot of nodes. And so that's the decentralization of it. So ostensibly you have that many copies of the transaction log. But check this out. A total of... 33% of the 422,000 unique network validators uh, are held... Oh, I'm sorry. The 422,000 unique network validators stake about $22.3 billion mm-hmm. of, of Ethereum. Mm-hmm. 33% of that is held in Lido, Lido Finance, mm-hmm. a liquid staking protocol that yep. allows people to stake their own coin or to stake their coins without meeting the minimum 32 ETH requirement. Mm-hmm. Another fifteen percent is on Coinbase. So how does that work? How do you create a protocol? Because what do they do? The do they do the difference, or like you go through them and then they take a fee? They'll put up, they'll advance the money to get it onto the network, and then they'll take a fee out of right cash so, it out. So they're pooling money, and then every time they get thirty ETH, they go and they start another validator node. Right, but why are they? Like, how do you? How do you stake coins without meeting the minimum requirements? So you, you st- you're giving control over the coins to a smart contract. So you're, you're putting up some amount of it into a smart contract, and then you're locking it up. And then as it aggregates funds, they can start, they can use those funds to, um, to actually stake. So there's basically contract one and contract two. Contract one is the Lido contract that's doing this uh, pool management and managing the interest that's paid out. Contract two is the actual staking contract that everyone else can use. Any people who are actually running validators, they're just taking 32 ETH. They're sending it to the validator contract. They're getting their permission to start validating. So it's turning a one-step process into a two-step process to allow undercapitalized people to play hmm okay mm-hmm. and then there's just like a vig on top of that that allows them yeah to... pretty much yeah so there's all right so you have a smart contract so that the trustlessness is that the people that are putting money into the lido contract can see that it's basically hardwired to the eth um staking contract they can see that, that, that n- at no point does a third party have control over the withdrawal function on 
the Lido contract. So it's hardwired right to the... What about Lido finance themselves? So they've got their fee, right? So they've, they've got their machines that they're running and then the, that they're actually doing the validating on. And, um, and they have their take. They have whatever their fee is. And so Lido could theoretically screw over the network by just like going delinquent and shutting off all their validators. And then all those people that staked their money, all of a sudden they start getting slashed because they aren't actively mm. validating on the network or something like that. I mean, something like that could theoretically happen. Um, got nothing to do with the operation of the blockchain. It has to do with people not fulfilling on their duties to run the computers at that point. But that's one way I can think of that you could damage that network. Really, the, the whole point of this proof-of-stake thing was to get people away from centralized services to go run the Raspberry Pi yourself. Right, and, and massive, and massive uh, power consumption. Right, right. So it's like if you, got, if you just run the Raspberry Pi yourself, uh, it helps the decentralization of the network, kind of how it was intended anyways. Right, but do you think that so right now it's like there's like five entities that control most of the the ETH two network. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's pretty centralized? Do you think that's going to change as time goes on, or do you think that that's just like it, it's kind of like uh, the internet? Like the internet is supposed to be decentralized, or rather the web. Sorry, the web is supposed to be decentralized, but in reality, there's like five websites that people go to. I think it for the time being. It's decentralized enough, as in, like, no one can, for all intents and purposes, take advantage of the network as things Well, sure, but are. I mean, you could, you could also run a web server in your closet, but, the, you know, that's not really going to do you any good against the, the, fi- the five data center companies. <clears throat> yeah, it's not ideal. The, the current setup is not ideal, but that's why the people that are involved try to think of incentives that steer the network more toward the outcomes that they want. And so that's right. generally what you see is them trying to create incentives that get more people to stake from home and stake in more countries. And What uh, about vegans? Sorry. I'll no, we don't want vegans. No vegans. Uh, looks like Coinbase, they said that they're, they're declaring that staking will be a big part of their solution to a $1.1 billion loss in their Q2 earnings report. Wow. Which I mean, if you think about it, look at look at what happened to to Bitcoin. It's at a quarter of the price it was three months ago. So, do you have you heard of um, Tornado Cash? I have heard of Tornado. Do you know what do you do you know what they are? Yes. Do you know what they are? Uh, no. That's why I'm asking. Cool. So Tornado Cash is a um, it's a smart contract that someone launched and it does a funny thing. It takes, it's a currency mixer. So what does that mean? I have never personally interacted with tornado cash, but I do know people who have. And so I know a little bit about what it does. Basically you send money into tornado cash. And when you send money into tornado cash, it breaks up the transactions into evenly sized amounts. So you can only send amounts of 0.1110 hunt and like 100 eth into the tornado cash contract and why do, why do they do that so all the transactions are indistinguishable from one another ah okay yeah so they're that all the same sense. size and so what happens is you send money 
into the Tornado Cash contract. And then it sends you a token, like a receipt or uh, Right. That's something. like a Tornado Cash token, right? Yeah. Or is it a stable coin? It's a, it's, a, it's a receipt that allows you to pull that money into a fresh wallet. Gotcha. So you can take this token, you can, you know, go create a wallet that has never existed before, and then you can submit this receipt to a uh, to a relayer, so to an on off-chain server that's part of the Tornado Cash network. And so you tell it the address of the new wallet and this little receipt that you have from when it's your proof that you sent money into the mixer. Oh. And you basically yeah, call it out. It. So the system initiates the transactions, not you. And that's a great way to launder money, which is why they got in trouble. Right. But here's the thing. Um, $7 billion has been laundered via Tornado Cash since 2019. Right. So there's arguments, there's logical arguments for and against Tornado Cash. The, the four arguments are basically that um, monetary privacy is a right. It's very important. It has always existed. It was a, it was a default for most of human history that... Money did not have traceability uh, for most of history, and the traceability of money is actually a very new thing, and it's used for a host of surveillance and censorship activities that sure, um, it doesn't really matter if it got used for you know criminal purposes. Um, it, it also protects legal activity of just people wanting privacy in their transactions for whatever reasons because right so so it it obfuscates the spending and the and the origin and also the amounts right and it does it so well that the authorities um all they can do is say hey stop doing that here's the thing and this is one of the very very special things about cryptocurrency and these um these functions that no one's really in control over is that when someone gets mad, when governments get mad at these new projects, unlike Facebook or um, any of these unicorn companies, where if you get mad at Mark Zuckerberg, you can call Mark Zuckerberg if you're powerful enough and you can get him to show up and you can harass Mark Zuckerberg and you might be able to influence incremental change at Facebook. Sure. You might also be able to build your own instance of Mark Zuckerberg and, and deploy him into Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And the more of the more of your data he gathers, the more he learns what it means to be human. Uh, exactly. And, like a Furby. Um, so um, the different thing that I think traditional structures are going to have to grapple with is that now when you find one of these projects doing things you don't like for whatever reason... There's kind of no one to call. You can sure. look at what they did with Tornado Cash. They did some very strange things in different countries and jurisdictions trying to uh, go rally one of the developers in Germany and, um, you know, bug him. But what are they going to do when they get him? He's well, I mean, it's similar to a lot of web services if you think about it. Like you, Google doesn't have a phone number for you to call if you have a problem with Gmail. Right. Well, but I mean in a legal context. But like... If Google did something very illegal, they could go get some important officers at Google right. and they okay. could get them I, I see time. What you're but I see what you're when uh, criminal things happen on the cryptocurrency networks, 
you know, whether they're criminal or not, or whether they're moral or not, it's a different thing, but there's no one to call. It has this profoundly guerrilla character to it where you, even the people that started it, a lot of times all they can do is apologize for launching the contract. They can't actually take right. it back. So check this out. The U.S. Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, uh, not only did they sanction tornado cash, but they're also sanctioning anybody that has an Ethereum address that's associated with tornado cash. Right. So if you don't like somebody, you can send them ETH that's been tornadoed, and then they will have they will get in trouble with the Treasury. But isn't that funny? Because that sort of creates the argument for, oh, I didn't want to interact with well it's it's almost like if somebody mails you drugs but you didn't know that happened and then you open your mail and a cop shows up and he's like i think there's drugs in your mailbox it looks like these drugs were addressed to you are you liable right it's a good question yeah um it's also a 20th century uh, solution to a 21st century problem which is very par for the course when it comes to the government Mm, it is yeah and i I think that's generally um generally where they're going to going to struggle is um that they all they're always playing catch up with new technologies this one's not special in that way but no but it's about the just like there's a, a a almost like a generational shift when it comes to when it comes to thinking and approaching these problems, like when they argue against encryption and they go, if I put money in the safe and I tie a ribbon around the safe and you, the cops come and they say, take off the ribbon and open the safe. I'm legally I, I'm legally obliged to do that. Why can't that work with encryption? Well, that's not how encryption works. Mm-hmm. So it's it, this is the same kind of thing where it's like they're using an old law, old sanctions, old rules to deal with a very modern problem. Um, yeah. But yeah. Well, I think what's interesting um, is yes. that well, I lost my train of thought. Something was interesting. That's fine. Sure you know was. what? We're, I think we're out of time anyway. Okay. So nice. why don't we talk about, well, first, before we do the nightcap, Joel, is there anything else you want to add? No. Cover all the bases. Wow. All right. Well, I'm 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 sorry. We'll have to. Have it's to almost find a... it's it's almost like the notes that were put the thing were pulled out of my head. Wow. Well, that's that's great. Um. Hopefully, next time we can. Uh. Well, first we're gonna do a part two, and next time when we continue this, we'll have more stuff uh to say. And I really hope that you'll have more stuff to say that we don't steal from you and put in the notes and then say it before you can say it because. That's not nice, but it's also not our fault. Much like what happens if you get tornadoed. So. Look at that. Um, I'd like to talk about the spectacular collapse of CryptoKitties. Okay. They said, before CryptoKitties, if you were to say blockchain, everyone would have assumed you're talking about cryptocurrency. Wow. I can't believe that because I just heard about CryptoKitties when I read this article. And I, I, I mean, you are talking about cryptocurrency. Each CryptoKitty is a token a set of data on the Ethereum blockchain. Unlike cryptocurrencies in ETH and Bitcoin, or unlike ETH and Bitcoin, these tokens are non-fungible, so that is, they're NFTs? Well, they're not token. NFTs aren't token. Yeah, they are. NFTs are, so they're NFTs. 
right? Yeah, they're they're kind of precursors to the NFT, but they're basically NFTs. Uh, yeah, launched on 20th November 2017, mm-hmm. CryptoKitties skyrocketed in popularity uh, as the world's first Ethereum game. Sales volume surged from just 1,500 uh, NFTs on launch day to more than 52,000 by the end of 2017. Uh, and then what happened? The price of a kitty depends first on rarity and then depends on the gene side. Mm-hmm. The second, and the second dimension is just how many kitties are on the market. With more people come more kitties. And with more players means more demand, but it also means more opportunities to create supply through breeding new cats, which dilutes the rarity of each NFT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they didn't have the fixed supply thing. CryptoPunks were the, was right. the first community that really did the fixed supply thing. And that gave rise to this NFT thing we just saw in the last cycle that generated billions of dollars of commerce and I think foretold the loyalty program and um, royalty and secondary market sales tactics that I think are going to broadly define the next generation of marketing. Huh. Yeah. What, how do you, how, can you expand on that? Uh, that's actually really interesting. Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, all these NFT projects with relatively little to offer were able to raise huge amounts of money in these sales. You know, they would. Sure. They, well, I mean, NFTs were, were really huge at the beginning of was it the beginning of this year. I have completely lost track of time thanks to COVID. Yeah. I don't know well, anything. And so why do they why did they buy them? It's really just because they had the expectation that someone else would buy them. And right. So this started this time scarcity thing where people would buy these NFTs before they were sure that they needed to buy them because they didn't have much time to make the decision and they were observing spec- other speculators. And so um, they got into this turtles all the way down situation where um, word of these projects would spread very fast because everyone wanted to know what the next project was, the next profit opportunity. And so, how is that? But, how is that different from something like the Board Ape Board Ape Yacht Club, which almost sounds? If you don't enunciate that, it can sound like I, I never would have guessed that's what this is. Board Ape Yacht Club. Yep. So I was going to ask because I know with that one. That you had the token, you had access to the bathroom where you could see graffiti and stuff. Like, didn't they actually have their project where you could actually get access to stuff because you had a token? Yeah, a lot of projects did that. Uh, Board API Club is really just special because they were first and their execution. But they don't have the total. They don't have a fixed supply. They do. So, they do. Yeah. Ten thousand apes. How are there sixty six hundred sixty two thousand total volume? That's the amount of ETH that has Owners. changed hands. Oh, oh trading oh, volume. Okay, ten thousand items, six and a half thousand owners, six hundred sixty-two k in total. Mm-hmm. And then the floor price, seventy-three point seven Ethereum dollars. Ethereum. Wow, seventy-three Ethereum for one of these apes yep. that are bored. Yep, that's almost the price of a yacht. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Or a catamaran. At least. It's a house wow. for sure. So how is this, I mean, so how, why is this, no, because it's fixed. So then when all of the apes get sold, what happens? People, will this just die in the vine? People are going to have to start trading them with each other and the price increases? They they were sold within days of the, or like within a month of the project starting. Wow. 
So they are all sold. So that the the scarcity is that you can only get one by getting it from someone who already has it. Or you can take a screenshot of it. Shh, don't do that. Can't prove the... Right-click, open ownership. image, and new tab. Hey, look at that. I just saved 71 ETH. Mm. Oh, it's not transparent. It's not a PNG. You can't get... Oh, wait, width equals 750. The... What if I do width equals 1920? You don't, you don't tend that? to get into the yacht party without being able to prove that you can sign with a wallet that holds one. Well, you also don't tend to get into the yacht party if you're <laughs> no, Jewish, so... Mm. No keys, no access. Exactly. Um, okay. Cool. So crypto kitties, I guess it was just the fact that they didn't have this they, they didn't have a fixed supply and they just diluted themselves. They they diluted themselves into delusion. Yeah, they diluted themselves into irrelevance. They did. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest problem with these blockchain games is that they're not fun, and if they're not fun, people don't want to invest in the game itself. Everyone who spends money wants to leave the game with more money than they spent. Mm-hmm. Huh. There's there's another one I forget what it was called but basically they didn't oh it was the um was it wow no it was a squid game um crypto nft thing they had to shut down the project because the developers couldn't deliver on the features they were promising wow all right that's cool all right well I think that's enough for part one uh very interesting discussion thank you Ryan yeah, no for for really leading the charge here. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to dig in more now that we have a good base set up. We'll be able to dig in more and also expand uh, what we talk about relating to this merger next time. Does that sound good? Sure. All right. So then with that, uh, Joel, do you approve of this week's pull request? Yes. Ryan, how about you? Approved. Comments. With comments. Oh, no. What do you say? Mm. What did he say? Uh, what did Ryan's? What did you? What? Uh, no. Oh. All right, well, then we'll see you all next week right here on Pull Request. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. Theme music by Volpec.